when there's blood in the streets, uh Lift up, check under the carpet Many try but few become Master of the mark market David Wright, thanks very much for coming on Masters of the Market. Really look forward to having a chat. I thought a good place for us to start would be with Zenith and, uh, and what you guys do there. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Good to, good to be here. Uh, so Zenith, what do we do? I mean, our business model is really to try and identify the best fund managers in the market, both from an unlisted perspective, but increasingly listed. So leaks and lits and exchange traded managed funds um, rate them and sell those research and ratings to our financial advisors. And what sort of families or, or businesses look to use your services? Yeah, so it's from the very large sort of financial advice businesses, uh, like your BT Westpacs and the various um, financial planning businesses within that group, to your you know, suburban accountant that does um, some financial planning for, for his clients um, as part of, the, part of his business. And there's a bit more nuance to it than just yearly performance. Talk us through some of the risk adjusted things you guys look out for, maybe some of the, the things around correlation between different funds that, that businesses like to see from you guys. Yeah, there's a lot more to it. You're right. You know, most people focus on performance and of course performance is important. That's what at the end of the day investors want. Um, but performance can be generated in a lot of different ways. So, you know, if you've got a really volatile fund or investment um, or manager, then um, you need to be compensated for that volatility by, with high performance. And that, that isn't always the case. So we're very focused on looking at um, how efficient the performance is generated. So if a manager is taking on a lot of additional risks as opposed to um, the share market risk, then you wanna be rewarded for that, for that return. The other thing we look at is um, you know, consistency of return so, and how they generate their returns. So, do they generate more of their returns when, um, when the market's rising? And do they outperform the market when the market's rising? Um, and do they protect capital when, um, when share markets are falling? So um, that's sort of called a, you know, a hit ratio, or a lot of people refer to it, particularly in the US, as a sort of you know, batting ratio. Um, so yeah, it's, it's much more than um, performance um, and uh, risk adjusted, as you said. Is, um, is a key to what we do and look for in the numbers. And how do you get to know, if I'm a large family office and I've got positions in multiple funds, how do you give some detail and colour around which funds are going to be more highly correlated than, than the others? Yeah, so sorry, I didn't answer that question. Correlation is hugely important when you're constructing a portfolio. Um, you don't want all of your investments doing the same thing at the same time. I mean, it's, you know, it's, in an ideal world, you want all your cannons firing all of the time. Yeah. Um, the reality is that just doesn't happen with the different asset classes you're invested in. Uh, different world markets perform differently at different times. So, you know, in an ideal world, when you're constructing a portfolio, you want a portfolio that's going to generate attractive returns through different economic and market cycles. Um, and in order to do that, you need to um, combine managers that have low correlation with each other. Um, that might be, you know, within Australian equities using a, a manager that's got a, a value investment style with a growth style and maybe a long short. Um, so style, correlation, you know, really important to get that diversity when you're constructing a portfolio. And in terms of funds that 
regularly have consistently shot the lights out. What are some of the characteristics of a high performing fund? It varies. So particularly in Australia, well, everywhere has finite markets, but the Australian market in the global context is, is reasonably small, as you know. So um, in a lot of the asset classes in Australia, there's what we call um, capacity constraints. So in general, you don't want to invest in a manager that has uh, a lot of funds under management because that just restricts their ability to generate um, returns over and above um, the index or the, or the market in which they're investing. So that's, that's definitely a key consideration. You, know, you hear a lot of managers talk about how easy it was when they were managing $50 million or $100 million and now that they're up, you know, if it's a small cap manager managing $700 $800 million, just how much harder it is to, to outperform the index. Are you surprised more micro cap, small cap managers don't look to distribute a chunk of cash back so they can keep going back to that smaller size and create the alpha that they, they started creating in their early time? Yeah, that's 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 pretty rare. I mean, you're because they're addicted to the fees. Exactly. So, um, but you're right. Like um, many of the managers in uh, micro cap, small cap, even mid cap space, will close their fund. Yeah. Um, so that they protect the ability to generate, um, you know, additional returns for the existing investors. As you say, it, it is pretty rare to see a manager return capital. To investors, Don't paradise still big capital return years ago. They did, they did, and that really, you know, that hit the media everywhere because it's it's really is pretty unheard of. But, yeah, you know, as you say, a great way of uh, well protecting uh, the manager's ability to generate you know additional returns for the underlying investors. So you know that was something that we we're pretty positive on, to be honest, and we're very we're also positive on managers. Um, being true to their words. So, you know, when you're investing in them early, if they say, look, if we're going to close the fund at half a percent yeah. of, you know, this small ordinaries market cap, we want to see them do that. Do you see it as a different skill set, those managers that are incredible at picking micro cap and small cap stocks? Is that transferable to mid and large cap stocks or do you often see it as a different skill set? There's a real difference between being a good stock picker and being a good portfolio manager. Yeah. So you see this a lot, and we've seen this historically where, you know, respectfully, you've got um, brokers coming out of a, um, a stockbroking um, organisation set up a funds management business um, and, you know, have picked individual stocks for their clients probably forever. But when they're constructing a portfolio, managing a portfolio on an ongoing basis, in general, haven't been that good. So I would say, to answer your question, there is a different skill set between, you know, small and micro cap um, investing and investing in Aussie equities large cap. You generally need to be is a lot more nimble, and um, you know, usually the portfolio turnover is um, is somewhat higher in um, particularly small cap as opposed to large cap. In terms of that portfolio construction, is that is that a world that's dominated? from what you see by the long short guys, or do you see some long only guys that are able to de-risk their portfolio by, you know, whether it's the amount of cash they hold or gold or, or some other insurance type strategy? Is it really a world where you see portfolio construction dominated by the long short crew? Oh, look, I think the ability to protect is, you know, they've just, you've got another lever um, with long short for sure. The majority of managers, um, long managers are, 
you know, their mandate requires them to be fully invested. To be honest, we probably prefer that because you've seen a number of managers that have said, look, we've got a flat, flexible mandate and we can go to, you know, 50, 100% cash if we can't see value in the market. Single asset class managers are historically pretty poor at the asset allocation decision. So, um, you know. So you're almost like the asset allocation decision to be made by the investor in the fund where they can say, well, I'll hold some cash here for a rainy day. I don't need the fund holding it there on my behalf. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and if you have, if you have a portfolio of managers that have really flexible mandates and able to go, you know, up to 100% cash, that, that gives you no ability as an investor um, to manage your, your cash and your cash allocation on a look through basis. Um, so we do think that's, that's a better approach to, uh, for individual investors. And in terms of some of the other qualitative things you might look for in a, a fund manager, particularly if you're trying to find a smaller one that's got the ability to outperform, what's some of the, is there a history of the founders working at bigger, more successful shops or their ability to have skin in the game invested alongside you? What are some of those qualitative measures you would, you would see that generally or have a habit of correlating with good performance? Yeah, I mean, uh, as you say, there's nothing like skin in the game, yeah. let's face it. Um, so the manager's managing their own money alongside that of investors. Um, you know, we, we definitely like to see that. Um, we, as you say, we do like to see a track record. Um, I think it's incredibly important that you're, um, you're invested with people that have invested money through different um, investment market cycles. So, um, and that's pretty hard, right, in the sort of bond yeah. and fixed interest space at the moment. We've had a bull, bull market for 20 years. So there is a lot of participants in the fixed income market that have never seen, never seen a bear market in bonds. Um, so we do want to see people that, you know, have um, a conviction in how they invest. They understand, you know, uh, where their um, competitive advantage is. Um, and as I said, have the commitment through um, extreme market conditions to hold that conviction. Because what tends to happen with those that don't is, you know, as soon as you capitulate, the market will turn around and favour the approach that you had. And we saw that through the sort of tech media telecom boom of, mm. um, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and you see it sort of time and time again, particularly with really stretched market environments. And, you know, maybe one at the moment is, um, you know, the big, dispersion between, um, you know, value and growth managers. So that's two different styles of investing, both in global equities and, um, and Australian equities. And growth managers have outperformed value for the longest period ever. You're sort of starting to get, you know, some managers on the value side of things, convincing themselves that uh, actually this growth stock, you know, is a value stock and it fits in my portfolio. So. That's what we call sort of portfolio drift. And you don't want that because as soon as the market flips over, they haven't participated in the ride up um, and they won't participate when the market conditions change because they haven't remained true to label. So there's a desire for human beings more broadly to be part of a group. And so you speak about uh, growth investors or value investors or, you know, some funds class filled activist investors, which would be bloody hard work in Australia because you only yeah, have a few yeah. opportunities a year. Yeah. Is there a place for someone to just be broad and, and open to whatever good investments they see fit that arise? Or particularly if you want institutional money, do you need to put yourself in a group 
so that it's clear around things like correlation with other funds and, and just what those institutions are investing in. Because if you give yourself too many rules as an investor, after a while they can sort of start to feel like a jail. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you want, you want some sort of blend of what you're talking about. So you don't, you don't want, particularly in institutional, high net worth, sophisticated investors, um, generally won't invest in a go anywhere manager. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, as you said, you don't want your um, portfolio constraints, mm. uh, your investment risks so constrained that you're not able to leverage um, the, uh, the skill set of the underlying portfolio manager and investment team. So it, look, it is the case in institutional investing and the sort of space we, we work in that um, managers do get, you know, sort of labelled or pigeonholed. And when you're constructing a portfolio, you're looking at combining those managers of different labels in a sort of diversified sense. So, um, yeah, so th there is that, but underneath that, you want managers with, you know, reasonably flexible mandates to be able to uh, do what they need to do to, to generate um, good returns. So it's easy to see why um, funds or institutional investors have an advantage over private investors, just their access to resources, their knowledge base, their experience in the field. Do you think potentially that flexibility is an edge that a private investor can have over a fund, that when the market does turn, they can react to things quicker? Uh, I do, yeah. I mean, that, that's a, it's, you know, with some of the institutional investors, um, they are so large, as you said, that, you know, making an asset allocation change, like, you know, turning around a massive boat, you know, it's, um, it's going to take a long time to make that happen because they got so much money, they can't liquidate holdings yes. quickly. Uh, whereas, you know, for an individual investor, you've got much more flexibility and ability to do that. So even if it's not making a big asset allocation change, but you, you want to get out of one fund or lick or lit into another, generally you're going to be able to do that. Um, so I, I do see that as, a, as being an advantage because, you know, one of the things with large institutional and high net worth investors is that um, uh, they've got so much money to invest there, um, almost too diversified. So what that tends to lead to is, you know, an expensive sort of index result. Yeah. Whereas if you've got the ability to invest in, you know, just two, three, no more than a handful of, you know, flexible, high quality managers in each asset class, um, you've still got the ability to, to generate a really strong return and outperform the market. And you mentioned index investing and, and passive investing, which has just been a, an absolute boom for, well, I think, I think in the States, we're now over 50% of, of shares are owned by passive investing strategies. Yep. How do you feel about that? And you're, I, I guess in a lot of ways, it's in conflict with the very, very business you do. And some would even argue it's in, in conflict to capitalism where money's meant to find its most efficient home. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as a as a research house of Zenith is, you know, we fundamentally believe in the ability of active managers or quality active managers to outperform. That's not to say some asset classes are more difficult to outperform, more efficient, you know, asset classes like, you know, US large cap. There is sort of so much research uh, of those companies that that's, that's a segment or market that's traditionally pretty difficult for active managers to outperform. Um, 
The other extreme is, as you mentioned before, Australian small cap, Australian micro cap, the vast majority of active managers outperform the benchmark mm. in those. So it's a little bit nuanced by the asset class, but um, you know, look, you're right, there's been a massive trend, particularly in the States, and off a, admittedly off a low base here, but some strong growth here into you know, benchmark or passive funds. I think some of it's initially driven by fees. Obviously you can get, um, you know, uh, access to the S&P 500 for probably four basis points in the States, which is you know, unbelievably cheap. But the other thing that happens that, you know, I don't think a lot of retail investors understand is that when you get really strong bull, bull markets, frothy markets where we've seen, you know, a lot of, in particular, a lot of the uh, mega tech stocks um, just become more and more and more expensive. Um, You're allocating capital just based on size. Exactly. As opposed to profitability or various other metrics that a, an active manager would be interested in. That's right. That's right. So, you know, as, a, um, as an active manager with a strong valuation discipline, you're not going to invest in those really expensive stocks. They just don't meet your criteria anymore. So it is quite normal in bull and frothy markets that, you know, um, index funds are at the top of the performance tables. And so people see that and go, well, they're cheaper, they perform well, I'm going to invest there. And when you get a strong, you know, which we've seen, as you said, in the States, really strong flow of money going there, that becomes a bit self-fulfilling. Yeah. You know, that money's got to, goes into the fund, it's got to be placed somewhere. Where does it go? It goes into the higher weighting stocks or all of the stocks in the benchmark, obviously, but the higher weighting ones and continues to push that price up. So it, yeah, it becomes a bit self-fulfilling. And we, so we've seen the effect it's had on, let's say the large cap stocks out of the States in particular, the FANG stocks yep. get spoken about a lot. Uh, we're yet to see passive investing decrease. Has there been a period where flows have come out of passive investing? I know decades ago it was off a much smaller base. Yeah. But we're yet to see what happens when those flows come out. Exactly. So you're right, like in previous um, sort of market uh, phases and so forth, yes, we've seen money come out of passive. But as I said before, passive didn't own as much of the yeah. market as it does now. I think the same is true on the flip side. So, you know, if we, and we're starting to see it now, let's face it, um, you know, some of the really expensive stocks where you get you know, an unknown catalyst like the coronavirus and so forth, sort of worrying markets. Um, when you're sort of priced for, you know, perfection plus, um, that's where the money's going to come out of. So, um, and that drives down, if that's a big weighting, which it is, in benchmark um, or index funds, that's going to hurt the performance of the index fund. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, increased market volatility, sidewards, downward drifting markets, that's where you'll really see you know, the quality active managers outperform. Do you think the free brokerage that's happening in the States, giving more retail money access to stocks, do you think that's gonna have an effect in, in volatility? I do, because the, the, the thing that happens with retail investors is that, um, you know, investing money um, is a, you know, very emotional experience. Nobody wants to lose money. Everybody wants to make money. Um, you know, and historically what happens with retail investors is they get in at the wrong time and they get out at the wrong time. So, you know, which is interesting, isn't it? Like, I mean, if you think about, you know, when the sales are on at the shops and so forth, people go to the shops and buy stuff. Mm. 
when the share market pulls back and stocks are cheaper, people take their money out. You know, they don't buy, and it's an opportunity to buy. So, um, yeah, I, I think, as you said, like the flow of, and, and again, ownership of retail investment in markets. This is why you see, you know, a lot of the Asian markets being, you know, really volatile markets, because you've got a lot of retail ownership in there that's very, the investment decision is very emotionally driven. Um, and to be a good investor, really, you've got to try and park that emotion and just see, well, if, if, if it was a good investment and a value investment at that level, it's got to be better, you know, mm. when the market falls. And in Australia, we've had a recent Royal Commission into the banking and financial services sector to protect those retail investors. What changes have you seen in the industry post that Royal Commission and what, what changes do you see coming down the pike? Yeah, there's been some pretty big ones, let's face it. So, um, you know, whilst the Royal Commission in the end didn't necessarily uh, outlaw it, um, I think, you know, the banks probably preempted that ownership of financial planning business and funds management business, sort of vertical integration as mm. they were calling it, was not going to be um, allowed going forward. So, well, as I said, the Royal Commission didn't stamp that out in totality. You know, the banks were a long way down the track of either selling their financial planning businesses or, or the funds management businesses or both. You know, no longer are you going to get so much money in those networks going to internal house product. And I think that's, you know, that's certainly better for um, independent, not aligned funds management groups. Um, you know, we've seen the increase of um, educational requirements for, for financial advisors and so forth, removal of, you know, all sort of grandfathered commissions and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, that's leading to less financial advisors. And I think, you know, those that survive through that process will be, you know, are quality investment professionals. Um, and that's, you know, that's what the industry needs clearly is, you know, to be seen in the same light as you know, accountants and the legal profession and other professional services, which I think is, you know, where we're getting to. And even see a lot of super funds in Australia, T1 super funds bringing uh, their investment expertise back in-house. For years, they were sort of outsourcing a lot of it to independent portfolio managers or, or other funds. Yep. How do you think that plays out? Do you think that's a positive or a, a negative for those Aussies with super in those businesses? Oh, look, it's, it goes to what we were talking about before. So there's certainly, what you're saying is right. Like a lot of the large um, super funds have been bringing in-house the capability, in particular, to manage, say, Australian equities. Yeah. So we talked before about, you know, if you've got um, ex a lot of money and exposure to, you know, a large number of investment managers, even if each of those investment managers is good in their own right, the combination of those managers is going to lead to you know, an index-like return um, and probably at a higher fee. So, um, you know, a lot of those large industry super funds have internalised that and if they can generate with their internal team, you know, index plus a bit, they're saving members a fortune. Mm. Um, Will they move to more passive investing or are most of those super funds mostly going to be actively managed when they look at their Australian equities? No, that's a good observation as well. You've got, you know, groups like IFM, which is um, really a fund manager set up by the industry super funds, has a massive passive business. So parts of, you know, their 
the various industry super funds, um, equities and fixed interest exposure is is passive and done it like you know pretty close to you know zero cost. Um, I mean the flow-on effect of that, as you're sort of alluding to before, is that you know in the last sort of 12 or 18 months you have seen the rationalisation or closure of you know probably nearly two dozen Aussie equity managers, um, both large, small, um, or large and small and mid-cap funds. So, you know, we probably did have too many, but, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty dramatic in a short space of time. And talk to me about the fixed investment uh, funds that are going around. What are the changes that's happening in that industry? Bonds have had a 20-year rally. So there's been some outstanding returns um, generated from bond managers and bond funds. You've seen uh, a lot of money flow to um, index or passive bond funds. Um, and that's done well uh, as well as bonds have continued to rally. It's a misunderstood asset class. Bonds are. Let's face yeah. it. In Australia? Yeah. Uh, definitely in Australia. Um, to an extent, you know, around the world in, at the retail level. You know, a lot of people think of fixed interest as being well you know, the capital was fixed and I'll get paid, I'll get paid income. Um, unless you hold the bond to maturity, the capital is not fixed. It, it fluctuates with the market price. And yes, you do get paid the income. So a lot of the bond return in a rallying market has been through capital appreciation, mm. um, as well as obviously getting the income. We've got to a point now though, that, you know, bond yields are so low and bond prices so high that um, you know any move back upward, if we have inflation starting to emerge, um, you know there's potentially going to be sort of capital losses on on bonds. That's an issue, and it's an issue for um, index funds, uh, where without wanting to get too technical, um, the average maturity or the duration, as it's called, of those portfolios um, has has lengthened a lot since the GFC. And it's lengthened a lot because both companies and governments have taken the opportunity to issue um, well, more bonds and longer dated bonds because the interest they've got to pay is you know, much lower than what it has been historically. So that's led to things like the, um, you know, the Barclays Global Aggregate Bond Index, which is the index for you know, global bond market. That's lengthened about two years. So, and, and similarly here with the Bloomberg um, Composite Bond Index, lengthened about a year and a half. So you're sort of looking at, you know, say uh, five years and seven years for those two benchmarks. What that means is if you get a one percent increase here, you're going to lose five percent capital value. Um, if you're in a global index fund, you know, roughly that's seven percent. So they've become very sensitive to changes in um, interest rates, particularly on the way up. On the way, way back up, that's, that's a problem for investors. And the bond market seems like a much better way to play the economy than the stock market, particularly in the short term. In the short term, the stock market is so heavily driven by liquidity. Uh, and you hear so many stock investors talking about the overall economic environment and expecting that to translate literally into stock prices. Do you yep. think that's something that, that's often missed by Aussie retail investors? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, fixed income or bond managers are, are very focused on um, 
the economy and sort of macroeconomic events and so forth. And, you know, look, historically we've been better predictors of, uh, of that uh, and economic activity than, um, than equity investors. And you've got that issue at the moment, let's face it, you know, we've had both bonds and share markets rally, which is really, and for an extended period of time, which is very, very unusual. Um, it's sort of, it basically means somebody's wrong in that, you know, bond, bonds will rally where, um, you know, bond investors are thinking there's, there's not a risk of inflation emerging. Um, economic growth looks relatively subdued. Uh, whereas the flip side's, you know, true for equity investors that, okay, things are great. Like, um, you know, companies are going to continue to generate great earnings because the economy is going well. So there's this big dispersion in, you know, the two sides of the market in terms of what their view is going forward. And, you know, not, not both can be right. The arm wrestle having the bond market sort of telling you there's going to be no inflation for a long time. Is that the one thing in the markets, well, not the one thing, one of the things in the markets that's no one's really prepared for is what happens if inflation does come? Very few are forecasting, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, um, which is interesting when you look at, say, the US economy has been going gangbusters. Uh, you've got close to, you know, probably full employment there mm. and you haven't really had any wage growth. So, um, so you've got... Aging demographics, deflationary. You've got globalisation was deflationary. Technology, highly deflationary. But we've, we've had significant inflation in things like asset prices. Um, yep. You know, the, the share market, particularly buybacks over there, has been inflated heavily. Healthcare over there is rising really quickly. It's the deflation's really been in wages and sort of man-made. Things, you know, flat screen yep. TVs or yep. sort of consumable products. Yeah. Some of those things are changing. Like globalisation, it feels like it might be changing and shifting and becoming more localised again. Yeah. Demographics aren't changing. That's going to be deflationary in, you know, certainly countries like the US and Japan and here and even China's demographics don't look that crashed on. More broadly, when you look at those arm wrestles, how do you sort of think about what's going to win? Well, I think you've described well why we've had a, a uh, bull market in bonds for 20 years. Yeah. You know, like you said, the sort of demographics, technology's been a big one. You know, the average inflation rate certainly now and going forward appears as if it's going to be at a lower level than what it has been historically. Is, sorry, is it a bit like backing a horse though? When you look at a horse race, you can say, well, this horse I think is going to win, but it's at a dollar oh five. Versus this horse, I don't think it'll win, but it's probably a 10 to 1 shot and it's currently at 40 to 1. Is that the sort of bet that investors will look to make re-inflation where it's not priced in to the market and in some ways it represents an asymmetric return profile? Uh, yeah, I, I think, and what you've described as well is what we're sort of seeing in um, funds management. So you can buy the market if you want, um, really cheap and a lot of people have done that as we discussed before um, or you know look I'm gonna have I, I, I want to outperform the market so I'm gonna invest in managers that are truly active um, it's the guys in the middle like the sort of you know around benchmark but charging mm -hmm. active returns 
I mean, we think they're dead. Yeah. Um, and you've seen that, you know, in some of those managers we talked about before in Aussie equities that have closed, have been in that space. You know, index plus a bit, big funds under management, charging active fees. I think going forward, um, you know, you're gonna, it's quite polarised. If you want the market, yep, you can buy it, it's cheap. If you want the, the ability to outperform the market and probably outperform it by, you know, a good margin, you're gonna get the sort of really active guys that, as you said before, are very focused on, you know, managing their capacity. They don't, they're not just asset accumulators. Um, yes, sure, they've probably got a performance fee attached and they get rewarded for outperformance, um, but they're keeping a lid on how much they manage so that they can generate um, additional returns. So it doesn't really answer your question around inflation, but it does, I think, yeah. um, in, in some ways, um, is the characteristic of what's happened in a low inflation environment um, and the effect that that's had on investment markets. The Margaret Thatcher saying, isn't it? Don't stand in the middle of the road because you'll get run down from cars on both sides, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And I think that's very much playing out in, um, in the funds management trends. So I like the saying, don't tell me about what you like, tell me about what's in the portfolio. What funds have you yourself invested your own money in? Yeah, so obviously, well, perhaps not obviously, but as you'd hope, like we eat our own cooking. Um, and as you say, like it, there's, a, there's a difference between speculating and investing. So um, we're investing and that's a diversified portfolio. So, you know, in the Aussie equities space, we like a combination of, you know, long, large cap, fidelity, long, short, you know, Ausbill, um, small cap, OC, uh, mid cap, Pendle, um, and similarly through international equities, you know, Magellan, MFS, we've got a manager there called, uh, you know, Ironbark Copper Rock, which is an emerging, uh, emerging uh, markets manager that is investing in smaller companies in emerging markets that, um, sort of like what you said before, are more localised. Part of the problem with um, a lot of the emerging markets stocks, the large ones, is that, um, you know, the index players are there. So if the view on emerging markets is negative, all the money comes out of those large liquid stocks. Um, so you get more, talking about correlation, you get more correlation with, um, with developed markets. You know, we don't want that. We want exposure to the true growth of emerging markets through these smaller companies. Uh, and then on the fixed income side, like, you know, we were talking about before, the fixed income or the bond markets are really very finely tuned at the moment. So, you know, you need diversification through your managers in fixed income. So managers like PIMCO, you know, they're a really good duration manager, truly active, done well, even in, you know, when in the December quarter when, um, when bond yields increased. Uh, you know, a local manager here, Ardaya, that's sort of a relative value opportunistic type manager in fixed income, which does well when, um, you know, market volatility rises. Um, you know, in the alternative space, GMO from a global macro perspective, Firetrail, uh, Australian long short manager, uh, sorry, market neutral manager. Um, and then in, you know, uh, REITs or listed property, you know, we like sort of uh, resolution. Again, really active Australian based manager, but global. Um, 
done a terrific job. And so there's a bit of an arm wrestle with, with funds management. We've got the LICs that often trade at a discount to net tangible assets. Don't know if you're Magellan, but most of them do. And then unlisted funds management uh, businesses that, that trade at NTA. Uh, how do you see that playing out? On the one hand, the liquidity, particularly for retail investors, is great in the licks, but it, it, it irks them that they can't get NTA valuations. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think as we sort of discussed in the background, like if it's trading at an NTA and you're entering, uh, sorry, discount to NTA and you're investing, does it, I mean, does that really matter? If you're coming in post um, float, then you already's got a discount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different issue if you come in, as you said, at float, and then it's a discount. Yeah. But if it's a discount, does that does that really matter? It only matters to the extent that um, you obviously don't want that becoming a deeper discount. Yeah. So one of the things to look at there is um, the history of uh, discount or premium to NTA, um, and you will see that um, you know when you do that, you get an idea of what's the normal discount. Um, to NTA and um, as long as the manager's performing, that'll be reflected in the NTA and you buying in at that discounted price should, should be okay. I mean, one of the things that, you're right, a lot of money has been raised in licks and lits in recent times and some of that has been in uh, income or fixed income type securities that we don't believe retail investors fully understand and say, so, Again, this goes back to our uh, comments before. Where that's the case, you get um, inefficient pricing of the lick or lit. So that's particularly, on the, and we haven't had it yet, let's face it, for a lot of these licks and lits, where you get a sort of stressed market environment, and maybe that's happening right now, the discount to NTA can become really large. Mm. Uh, so what Jeff Wilson's for coming in. Exactly. Them up. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, but that's an opportunity too, isn't it? I mean, if you see that discount, you know, getting to sort of 30% or those sort of levels, yep. um, it's a potential opportunity, isn't it? It can be. Uh, uh, part of the issue, as I said, is people not understanding the underlying portfolios and security. So, you know, will that discount ever contract again? Yeah. Um, you know, it can be very long time before that happens in some of you know some of those vehicles. Are there many vehicles in play where retail investors can invest into a vehicle that then invest in wholesale opportunities? Uh, well, yeah. So again, really uh, topical question. I mean, Magellan's let's face it, been sort of uh, a pioneer in a number of these spaces, and you know, and now looking at um, having a structure whereby um, you know, both the listed and unlisted um, are essentially one. Okay. So that's, you know, announced as recently as yesterday. If that, if that's achievable, I think that, you know, that potentially revolutionises how people access uh, fund managers. Um, but you're right, I mean, there's a lot of um, query, I suppose, around some of the exposures that industry funds have, you know, the um, direct assets in particular, commercial property, direct infrastructure, um, can, you know, can retail investors get access to, to some of those asset classes? Um, I mean, the answer is yes. And private equity is yeah. another. The answer is yes, but usually in a sort of modified form. Um, 
So there's, you know, there are some sort of direct infrastructure funds, not many, but um, that have a, uh, a listed component to it as well, or a cash element. So um, if people want to come and go within reason, um, they can. Similarly with private equity, uh, there's a couple of funds um, that uh, invest in like a partners group value fund, invests in sort of listed private equity vehicles so you can get that exposure. You know, it's uh, longer term but performs like private equity in the short term, you know, probably a little, um, can trade a little away from, from the physical. Now I want to finish with three questions, if you don't mind. What was your first investment? Tax effective trees. Oh, no. <laughs> We're all the rage. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, needless to say. How did that turn out? That didn't go. I love it. I love it. I had a friend in Perth that invested in one of those uh, tree plantation businesses and he started going to the girl whose old man was a really sophisticated investor. Yeah. And um, just was almost viscerally ill when he, <laughs> when he was told about this tree investor. So, um, you know, that's a, sorry to interrupt, but the shame about that is timber is an asset class, like is a legitimate asset class, yeah. as you know, like in the States. Yeah. But here, because of, you know, we wrapped all this tax effective and geared structure around it. Yeah. Um, it's gone away totally as an asset class because yeah. people, so many people were burnt by it, which is, um, which is a shame. And, uh, and what advice would you have investment or otherwise for your 18 year old self? Um, be patient. Yeah. So as we've seen before, you know, investing can be a really, um, well, yeah, most people get too emotional because it is money. Uh, they don't want to lose it in particular. Um, and you know, they obviously want to, you want to generate, but I think especially in, um, today's world, you've got so much information flow. The press sensationalise the movement in markets. Um, you know, as I said before, most people get in. Um, there's a fear of missing out on the way up. So you know, your neighbour's talking about your golf buddy at the footy club. Um, you get in at the wrong time, and then when things start moving downward, you're thinking, "I'm going to lose money here." You jump out and don't have the patience. So I think, uh, you know, a massive competitive advantage is. Um, as I said, try not to be emotional about your investments, trying to sort of be logical. If you've got a good investment, you know, stay with it. Right, it's been brilliant. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on Master the Market. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks, mate. Make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Many tab, but few become master of the market. 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 market.